From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Author Steve Ubaney is standing by to present his best evidence that America's 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was murdered. That's right, murdered. So, if you're like me, you've always believed that FDR died of a sudden stroke or cerebral hemorrhage at the, uh, the little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia, back in April of 1945. If this is the case, Steve Ubaney wants to know, why were FDR's medical records stolen and destroyed? And are we really expected to believe that he died of natural causes at the same time Allied troops were closing in on Hitler's bunker? Are we really expected to believe that Roosevelt, Hitler, and Mussolini died within 18 days by mere coincidence? We are about to discover what Steve Ubaney found deep in the archives under more than 70 years of dust. Steve Ubaney is the holder of four college degrees and has been inducted into multiple national and international honor societies. He merged his love of history with his quest for the truth, and he became the architect of the Who Murdered book series. Since the inception of the series, numerous volumes have been published as he works toward the completion of a six-volume set, which is scheduled for completion in 2022. Tonight we discuss Volume 2. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Steve Ubaney, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Why FDR? Why did you decide to dial back more than 70 years and write about FDR? Well, you know what they say, to the victor go the spoils. Well, to the victor also go the lies. Uh, I never believed what I was told in high school. Um, about FDR in the end of the war. <clears throat> Pardon me, I thought it was a little bit too convenient. So I gave them the answer that they needed to get so I could pass the class and get my grade and this and that. But I always earmarked that moment in time in history as never making sense to me. Um, so that's what started my interest in this subject. FDR is one of the... He's a very divisive character in history because people either absolutely adored him for, they believe, lifting them out of poverty during the Depression, or they absolutely hated this man because they thought he was an authoritarian, a dictator, and a communist. Where do you uh, fall in terms of your regard for the 32nd president? Well, you know, I love him and hate him. I think that he was, he helped a lot of people in a time when people really needed help. Uh, he was an excellent communicator, and of course the communication channel of the day was radio, so he was, he was a very warm person uh, in everyone's living room, giving them messages of hope and encouragement that things would get better. And of course, he, he subscribed to the Marxist theory that um, academia and government could cure all of the ills of mankind. And you know, of course now we know that it takes more, <laughs> it takes a little bit more than, than that. Um, to cure all the ills of mankind. But he helped a lot of people. He was a good guy. His um, The economy, the New Deal that he put in place, was uh, 
was basically a communist Marxist doctrine or a takeoff thereof, um, putting everyone to work for the taxpayer. And um, it were it had never been done before. I mean, this was landmark. This was huge. And because it had never been done before, they really didn't know how it was going to work. So um, I think he was a great communicator. I think he was a very beloved person. I think uh, history shows that, you know, his economic strategy was a nightmare. Um, but I also think he was probably the best war president we've ever had. Now, before you sort of paint the picture of him as essentially a communist or certainly very sympathetic to to communists, you spend some time depicting his struggles, obviously, with, with polio. And really, he is a very sympathetic and likable figure, although... Early on, sort of born with a certainly a, a silver spoon in his mouth, had zero relatability to the average man in the street because of his upbringing and his wealth. Let's just spend a little bit of time talking about Franklin as a young man growing up in a, a very sheltered, privileged life, obviously, in New York. Well, Franklin Roosevelt, if you ever get a chance to go to Hyde Park and visit the Roosevelt Mansion, which houses the National Archives, which I spent an enormous amount of time doing the research for this book, if you ever have a chance to do that, do the tour of the museum, do it. You'll get a very good idea of what the, this person was like um, and what he, what it must have been like being a child on those lush grounds in, in the Hudson Valley. Um, he was an only child. Anything that he possibly could have wanted, he could have gotten, you know, just by, just for the asking. Um, Roosevelt's were old money. And when I say old money, I mean that they were worth multiple millions of dollars at a time in America when people didn't have anything. I mean, they were probably more wealthy than anyone who was ever wealthy in the country at the time. Second, probably only to the Vanderbilts who was just down the road a quarter of a mile from their mansion. They had the, road, the Vanderbilt mansion. So we're dealing with some, some heavy hitters back in the day. Um, had very little to do with the common man. Why? Because he had no exposure to the common man. He was, he was a very wealthy, very sheltered, very spoiled little guy who, you know, basically got everything that he wanted. That all changed when he ended up contracting polio, and basically all he could do was blink. I mean, he had no use of his arms or his legs, and and the very idea that he had the second lease on life is incredible. Just when you think you read something about Franklin Roosevelt that you're not going to like, you read about how he persevered and won back the use of his arms and fought his way back from a disease that was kind of tough. This was a very determined person. So, you know, he brings himself back, starts with the use of his arms, and you know, he has bars installed over his bed so he can do chin-ups and work on the strength of his arms and has parallel bars installed in the front yard of his house so he can continue to exercise his, his uh, arms and work their way back from this infantile paralysis of polio. And he tries to do the same thing with his legs, and he walked a couple of miles every day. And what he called walking was using braces with his arms and dragging his legs behind him with 12-pound steel braces on each leg. And he walked to Route 5 and back every day, sometimes multiple times a day, trying to get those legs to work. And, of course, he was unsuccessful. That was the earmark and the change in his life when he went from being a spoiled brat 
to starting to seek cures for his legs and meet other people in need. So this was a transformation point in, the, in this person's life. And his path to the, the White House, we're coming up on a break, we'll begin that conversation now and pick it up on the other side. For many presidents, the path to the White House has been governor of New York. His cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, governor of New York, other presidents have gone that route. But at that time, I mean, New York was Republican. His cousin was a Republican. How did he become governor of New York? I mean, obviously, name recognition had a huge amount to do with it. But to battle the Republican machine in New York, and his cousin must not have been too pleased either. It wasn't easy for him. And it was just, again, it's just due to that enormous will and ego and the determination this person had to use that use that last name successfully. Um, in order to garner power with the other side of the family, he married his cousin. Eleanor Roosevelt was born a Roosevelt, married a Roosevelt, died a Roosevelt. He married his cousin, <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and even the tour guide at the, at the uh, Franklin Roosevelt Museum thought that it was to garner favor with the Republican side of the family because he was on um, the, uh, the gover- governor run. Um, so they're interesting stuff with Franklin Roosevelt. And we're just starting to, this is just the tip of the iceberg. All right, Steve, hold on. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into Who Murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Steve Ubaney, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Steve Ubaney, my guest. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. And Steve is with us for the full two hours. We will open up the phone lines in hour two. Uh, so don't call in just yet. Just sit, listen, enjoy, and uh, likely learn a thing or two about uh, the, rem- the remarkable uh, life of the 32nd President of the United States. And, of course, where this is all heading is April 12, 1945, when... Well, most of us firmly believed and were taught that he died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 63. Why not? He was sickly. Uh, but we'll get around to that. Right now, what else was interesting was, and you document this in the book, how the illusion was created that he was a fit, you know, virile man um, while his legs were in an incredibly atrophied condition. Uh, part of this were the, these sturdy steel braces that he wore on his legs so that he could stand erect for hours. But also the media played a big part in helping prop him up, literally and figuratively. Talk to me about that. Yeah, he had struck a, a deal with, uh, with the media that he was, not, he was not to be shown getting in or out of an automobile. And there's, there's, even, there's even video footage that exists right now of the Secret Service telling the people, okay, shut your cameras off. You know, they were cooperating with this person um, to cloak the fact that he was, quote-unquote, walking, clutching one person's arm on one side with 12-pound weights on each foot and walking with a cane. He was really doing no such thing, but he had practiced it to the point where he gave the illusion that he was walking. And he had to do this for a couple of reasons. Um... You know, back then, they thought, incorrectly, by the way, they thought that if people had some sort of a uh, physical ailment or physical disability, that they couldn't possibly be mentally stable. 
so he thought that that had to be ruled in in order for him to uh, further his political career. So that's basically how that happened. It actually went to the point where he paid an insurance company, and this is covered in my book as well, he paid an insurance company to um, to, reinfl- to insure his health and attest to the fact of how healthy he was and, and this and that. It was at a $500,000 policy that they issued on his, his health. And, of course, it was nothing more than a political stunt picked up by the local newspapers to, uh, you know, to get him to uh, further his, his career. Because at that point in time, you know, his, uh, his career was over. You, you also point out here that in the 20s, news photographers actually voluntarily destroyed their own plates if they showed Roosevelt in poses that revealed his handicap. They didn't have to be. They didn't have to be told to do that. They did it voluntarily. I think that back then there was. It was a lot different than today. That's for sure. I think that. Uh, I think that back then there was a little more dignity to the press, and they really didn't have any vested interest in uh, cutting the knees out from someone, so to speak. I think that it was just an unwritten rule that they didn't. They didn't take advantage of someone's disability, or they didn't put anyone in a bad light. So. Now, I think that uh, I know that in some cases they were they were paid. In other places, other uh, other areas, they did it voluntarily. So when he came to power in well the election of 1932 and was uh, sworn in in 1933, uh, let's just talk about what was happening at that time in the United States. The the, the decades prior, even communists had infiltrated the government, most of the labor unions. Um, influencing most of America's social reformers. So this is sort of the backdrop of when Roosevelt comes to power. Communists had already infiltrated virtually all aspects of, of, of the American government, correct? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, we have to say this, and I know a lot of people are going to have their jaws open because, you know, we're saying, we're throwing this word communism about, you know, the communism back then, they didn't know anything about evil empires or anything bad or any connotation that was terrible with communism. It was proposed as the next big thing. Uh, it was going to stop the pitfalls of capitalism, and it was a cradle-to-grave society where everyone would be cared for. That's all they knew. Okay? And how this happened was, um, at the end of the war, you know, Kevin Coolidge had a great economy going. And, of course, he, uh, his term ended, and Herbert Hoover started fiddling with the knobs and levers of everything, ended in the rolling 20s, and here we are in a, in a capitalist bust. So Stalin, in all of his wisdom, and he was awfully sharp, um, extended invitations to news media, um, those in academia, those in arts and entertainment, some people in Hollywood, to come to the Soviet Union and view this new great system of government that they had found. And they came over there and they were taken to, uh, by, by uh, Stalin's police. They were even guided tours to what they call Potamkin villages. Potamkin villages basically are facades, phony villages that didn't function. And they were shown um, how this cradle to grave society where high taxes and everyone was cared for and, you know, uh, how everyone was fed, how pristine the cities were and everything worked. And they were sent back to the States with uh, packets of propaganda as to how they could transform America 
from the capitalist issue that was going on to the new communist uh, ideology where everyone was going to be cared for. So out of this, in 1919, started the um, uh, Communist Party, the CPUSA, the Communist Party in the United States of America, which is still in existence, actually, in New York City. And uh, if you go to their website, their website, the platform, the political platform, greatly mirrors that of the Democrats in today's world. Back then, it was sponsored by Stalin through his operatives and people who visited Russia to overthrow the government. So, very interesting how it had its start. Um, this started basically with the elite um, self-proclaimed uh, proclaimed academia, other academia that were legitimate, and of course, Franklin Roosevelt was in the vanguard of these people. So, he comes to Washington with these ideas, and he starts the New Deal, which is basically a cradle-to-grave society, where if you ate, if you slept, if you used a utility, it's because the government allowed it. So this was the backbone of the Communist Party in that era. And uh, it's, it's amazing how history mirrors, um, you know, today we have, um, you know, these accusations of Russian collusion with Trump. Uh, and yet, back then, 70 years ago, I mean, it was real. It was, it was going, there literally was a communist hiding under every bed. Uh, I mean, Senator McCarthy was, uh, you know, he was um, certainly a bull in a china shop and a nasty, a nasty man. Perhaps the problem was he didn't realize how right he was. Well, this is exactly right. And it's interesting how history plays games with you. Okay. Um, here we have 75 years later, we have another. Uh, New Yorker, another president, another polarizing figure, love him or hate him, anything like that, PR, love him or hate him, because people did both. Um, one it was, one it was a liberal, this one is a Republican, or I don't know if you can call him a conservative, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> the only difference, and one it was, one was actually, there were so many communists and Russians around Roosevelt, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, the laundry list, they were in, they had infiltrated Every, every part of government. Today's world, just the hint of the Russians being involved in government or an election is creating two years now of, um, of investigation. So it's interesting. History is kind of repeating itself, but, you know, kind of not. Uh, it's a little bit different, but it can tend to be a little more of the same. Um, it, it's amazing how you know, I mean, the White House communists around Roosevelt had infiltrated uh, um, there are 15 high-ranking officials, starting from Harry Dexter White to Ward Pigman to Elder Hist. And they had, they were in every single part of our government, from the Agricultural Adjustment Administration to the Attorney General's Office, the Department of State, National Labor Relations Board, the Labor Advisory Board, the War Production Board, the Price Administration, the U.S. Treasury Department. The U.S. Treasury Department had been infiltrated by communists. <laughs> Or the belief, and finally the public welfare committee. So we we were just being. If they had fur hats on, they would have been awfully awfully easy to spot. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, back in back in those days, you know, they thought communism was a great thing. Even Eleanor Roosevelt, when I went to the uh, Roosevelt Museum, she has a three drawer filing cabinet. She was under investigation for being a communist, and it's right in the middle of the museum. If you go to my book, there's um. There are, there are files 
that I show in my book of FDR and communism and how friendly he was with this ideology. So in my book, when I say that FDR was a communist, it's not that way because I say it's that way. It's that way because that's the way the research looked. Right, right. There was also a mutual admiration society going on between Roosevelt and Mussolini. People don't maybe realize that Mussolini was a communist and wrote for a, a communist magazine and a newspaper, uh, and, and was very enamored of Roosevelt's progressive policies. And, and likewise, Roosevelt sent a delegation to Italy. This was obviously before the, the outbreak of the war, uh, to, to study Mussolini's policies because they were so progressive, quote-end-quote. Uh, so you have that going on. But how did Roosevelt, um, how did he uh, garner such broad executive power? How, how, how did that happen? Well, you're dealing with a man who was very mentally dynamic. He could get just about anything in government that he wanted because, number one, he had a great persuasive way with the people. And he could do something, and he could convince the people that what he was doing was in their best interest. If it was or not, most times he probably felt that it was. There were a few times where he obviously knew that it wasn't. So he could sell that, whatever he wanted to do, very well, which gained him, um, which gained him, you know, incredible, incredible power in, uh, in government. And hey, let's face it, you know, I mean, you know, people tend to like free things, and you vote the guy back in who's giving you free things. So this is kind of the way this happened. You know, long about the time the New Deal had started to play itself out, the economy was coming back, not at all like they had thought. So he had proposed a second New Deal. And it didn't go over very well. And they had determined that the court at the time, the Supreme Court had determined that significant portions of the, of the second New Deal were unconstitutional. So... FDR, in his power, tried to change the balance of the court to get this through and add more judges to the court to get his second deal through, also known as packing the court. So he was a guy who was um, extremely sharp, very shrewd, steps ahead of people, and could tell it to the public. And yet, it, when the United States wasn't at war, he... Um, the Congress drew up this Trading with the Enemy Act and to, to give him the power that he, he needed. How did that? How does that happen? How do you have a Trading with the Enemy Act at a time of peace? I'm sorry, Richard, you broke up a little bit. Can you repeat that? Well, it's just curious that that uh, to get to grant him these powers, Congress enacted this Trading with the Enemy Act, and this was at a time when the United States was at peace. He could get just about anything that he wanted. Trading with the Enemy Act, or TIWA, started under Woodrow Wilson in 1917, along with the Sedition Act. Um, you know, TIWA was basically, well, it's a trading with the Enemy Act. And there were certain times where, for example, in 1933, um, he did the Emergency Banking Relief Act, and he would go after people who were hoarding gold. So he started an executive order to gather the gold back. In order to do that, he had to make it possible for the American public to be enemies, legally to make that work. It's really interesting how this happened. And the Sedition Act of 1918 um, started in the Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> anything that um, 
you know, any speech or uh, any abusive language or anything against the government was, uh, you know, would be an offense. And, you know, you can go to jail for it. Very interesting how we've evolved as a, how we've evolved as, as, evolved as a country. Uh, whereas now, I mean, they can just do just about anything they want, vulgar or not, and shove it in your face, and there's nothing anybody's doing about it. When you look at the the list, the laundry list of New Deal legislation, uh, Emergency Banking Act, Government Economy Act, Beer Wine Revenue Act, Creation of Civilian Conservation Corps, Abandonment of Gold Standard, Federal Emergency Relief Act, Tennessee Valley Authority Act, Securities Act, Abrogation of Gold Payment Clause, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you make the point here that essentially he gave himself the kind of power that Joseph Stalin would probably have been envious of. Well, the mutual admiration society between FDR and Joseph Stalin <clears throat> is one that no one can overemphasize. Um, he just loved everything about Joseph Stalin. He called him Uncle Joe. And when World War II came around, um, they were very, very leery of Joseph Stalin because they knew he was a he was a monster. But they started to realize the enemy of my enemy has to be my friend. So he admired Joseph Stalin, he admired his policies, he admired his rule. He was a little leery of him because he didn't understand him. And he was right to be leery about him because Stalin's the one that murdered him. Well, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. But um, at this time, uh, he's also making a lot of enemies at home, particularly with a lot of these New Deal era tax increases. Um just talk to me a little bit about uh, the, the sorts of individuals, companies that were perhaps most most hurt by Roosevelt's New Deal and, and who these new enemies were. Well, again, I don't believe that because the New Deal legislation and the taxes that accompanied it had never happened before, um, he had no idea that when he was giving to the poor, he was crushing the rich. And the poor has to work somewhere. So, you know, when you're crushing the companies to employ the people, you tend to self-perpetuate yourself in the New Deal. But um, to answer your question, some of the people who he was just, who just absolutely hated him because he was, um, he was just crushing their companies were DuPont, DuPont Chemical, Eastman Kodak, uh, Harvey Firestone, Samuel Colgate, the toothpaste company, Henry Ford. Um, Carnegie Steel, the Heinz family, uh, the Mellon family, who, who was in the banking the banking arena, um, he just uh, <laughs> the Coca Cola company. I mean, he was just crushing these companies with this legislation. It was just red tape after red tape after red tape to the point where no one could hire anyone. So not only was, and I don't believe he did this on purpose. And scholars have fought, have argued about this. They fought over this. Was he doing this to perpetuate his presidency because there were no term limits at the time? Did he know ahead of time that he was going to be elected and reelected and reelected because he was getting people addicted to their to his handouts? Personally, I don't believe that. I think this had never been done before, and the fact that um, he was crushing these companies was just, you know, ignorance of what was going on with the economy. Stephen, i got to jump in here. We'll take a timeout, come back. We'll talk about FDR and the United States enters the war. Back with more of my conversation with Steve Ubaney, author of Who Murdered FDR. Stay with us. 
there is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Steve Ubaney is with us. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Uh, Roosevelt had campaigned uh, and won you know, based on his promise to keep the United States out of the war. But that changed, obviously, in December of 1941. Uh, what changed? I mean, we know about Pearl Harbor, but, but there was something that happened before that, that, that drilled home the point to Roosevelt. He knew he had to get the United States into that war and fast. Explain what happened. Well, a couple of things happened. As I said, <clears throat> pardon me, he started to realize that the New Deals were not going to work on their own. And he knew that we needed the uh, the influx of, of industry to pull us out of the war. That was the first thing. Out of happened. the Depression, the you mean? Thing, out of the Depression. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. did I misspeak? Sorry. That's all right. Um, yeah. So the second thing that happened was uh, you know, <laughs> Roosevelt had to have that war happen for economic purposes. And he also had to have the war happen because we had spies in Germany who were in quote, we all have spies, guys. I mean, let's, let's be real. I mean, we have spies. Every country is spying on every country. So the United States has spies, too. I'm sorry to break anybody's normalcy bias, but we do, okay? So back then, our spies were in Germany, and they were in type. And they were no, they were, they were starting to trickle information back to Washington that the, the Nazis were very close to finishing their heavy water experiments. And that's the beginning of nuclear weaponry. And with their V-2 rockets and Werner von Braun, they had the technology to carry those nuclear weapons to all points of the globe. We needed to get in the war, and we needed to get in this war fast. So he had to sell this to the American people, because prior to this point, he'd been saying that this was Europe's war. This was Europe's war. We're not doing anything with it. It's their war. So Aside from granting huge loans to, 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 uh, to Great Britain. Oh yes, we were doing we were doing lend lease with Great Britain, and uh, you know we're doing all kinds of things to try and uh, to try and prop up Great Britain, who was almost was on the brink of, of losing their island. Um, in my book, I have a I have a 97 year old aunt who was actually in that in the bombings, 52 nights of being bombed by uh, by Hitler, and she she says right it's a it's, a, it's an interesting interview in my book with her. She said, you have absolutely no idea how close they came to losing your island. They thought, they being the Germans, that they were just going to bomb them night after night after night, and they were just going to give up, just like, you know, what had happened in France, because he basically rolled over France. And he said that the Germans were lined up on the opposite side of the English Channel, just waiting to come over and take the island over. And they came, they came really close to losing the island. So... If it wasn't for us helping Churchill and the Brits, they would have lost their island. So uh, we needed to get into the war, and we had broken the Japanese codes for a long before Pearl Harbor happened. So documents have now been revealed through History.com. FDR definitely knew that um, Pearl Harbor was going to be hit. So um, he was also trying to goad the Japanese into war. The J- Japan is an oil debtor nation, which means that they don't create or make enough oil or produce enough oil to support their endeavors. So they were getting their oil from us in the 1940s. So Roosevelt turned off their spigot. There's no more oil for them. That forced them to go island hopping to get more oil. 
So they were trying to negotiate with us and trying to negotiate with us. The Japanese didn't want to go to war with us. They had just exited a horrific war with, the, with China. The last thing they wanted was to go to war with the United States. Um, so they were trying to negotiate. FDR was ignoring them. Political change happened. They became a warring empire, and they decided to go island hopping. So FDR basically made that war happen. He needed to make that war happen because he needed to get us into World War II quickly. So, so you're, you're, so, the, you make the argument that Roosevelt knew uh, about the attack on Pearl Harbor before it happened. That was necessary in order uh, to sacrifice thousands of U.S. servicemen and civilians in order to galvanize public support for the United States getting into the war. That's absolutely right. And the history, history.com has come up with documents that, uh, that I didn't find, which I'm been there if I didn't find. But he found that they found top, top secret documents and published them here just a little bit after my book was published to solidify that very fact. Um, we needed to get into the war. We needed to get into it fast. So shortly before they hit Pearl Harbor, uh, the aircraft carriers were pulled out so they would not be harmed because they were going to be important to the rest of the war. Right. At that so, point, battle. yeah, the aircraft carriers were crucial to winning uh, the war. Battleships, not so much. And, you know, he needed to, yes, absolutely. And, you know, he needed to, uh, he needed to sell the war to the American public, and it took something horrific like Pearl Harbor to, in which to do so. It is curious that there were no aircraft carriers uh, in Pearl Harbor at the time. I guess Admiral King had ordered them out just in time. So that does sound very suspicious. So, I mean, um, uh, what a decision that... And you don't fault him for this. I mean, having to make that decision, it would have been like Lincoln during the Civil War. Uh, no other president would have had to have gone through something like that. He had to accept the fate that thousands of servicemen would be killed in order to prevent perhaps the the wholesale slaughter of tens of millions because the Germans were so close to getting the bomb. All right. I'm I'm sure that he must have agonized over it because Franklin Roosevelt was not a bad man. You know, he, he, you know, you have to, when you're in that leadership role, and hey, how do we know what any other president's done in history? You know, we really don't. This just happens to be what we found. I'm sure there's other examples that are even far worse in history. But, you know, Franklin Roosevelt had to realize that we needed to take this punch in the eye. Um, and I'm sure he agonized over it. I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was an awful decision for him, but um, unfortunately, leaders have to make those decisions, you know, from time to time. All right, Stephen, stay put. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss who murdered FDR right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Steve Ubaney is with us for the full two hours, and we will uh, take calls, questions, comments after the top of the, uh, the hour. Who Murdered FDR? This is Volume 2 in his Who Murdered book series. Uh, Who Murdered FDR? The True Story They Don't Want You to Know. Uh, so, the United States enters the war. Uh, how did Roosevelt and Churchill get on, knowing that, or did was Churchill aware that, that uh, 
Roosevelt was an admirer of Stalin. Did that cause any friction? Roosevelt and Churchill had a great, um, had a great working relationship. Uh, the two, the two liked each other. They worked well together. They trusted each other. Um, Churchill hated Stalin. Had to meet with him. Couldn't stand him. Uh, and I think that it may have bothered Churchill how friendly FDR was with his ideology because, to my knowledge, Churchill didn't, didn't describe to them. But I don't think it was any sort of, uh, lasting animosity or any animosity. I think it was, you know, the enemy of my enemy needs to be my friend. And I think that they were able at that moment in time to save humanity, put it behind them. And did Roosevelt and, and Churchill, uh, did they butt heads on how to handle Stalin? Uh, did they did they talk about, you know, looking forward to these, obviously, these summits that they had uh, in Tehran and so forth? Uh, well, they both knew that he was a temporary ally. And, you know, they... They were a little leery about him because, you know, we know now about the Great Purge. We know now about all of these things. But I don't think that they, they may have known, but I don't, surely <laughs> they, um, they didn't know that, uh, you know, Stalin had murdered, you know, a million people on a whim in his own country for something to do with show trials. I think that they were leery of some of the rumors they had heard, but I don't think that they knew that. Um, I don't think that really came out into, again, to the vicar go the spoils. I don't think that that actually came out, uh, until, until after the war. So, um, they were worried about getting, um, getting in bed with him for the war, but, um, they were more worried about, they knew that, that, uh, Stalin had his eye on the post-war world, and that's what concerned them. So they had to handle him with kid gloves. In the meantime, uh, Hitler is sending over assassination teams to the United States. I wasn't aware of this until I read your book. How many assassins uh, were were trying to track uh, trying to track Roosevelt down? Talk to me about these these uh, these spy rings that were out for for FDR. You know, Richard, I'm sorry you're breaking up. Can you repeat Just uh, I wanted to. I didn't know about all of these assassination teams that Hitler had unleashed in the United States to go after FDR. Talk to me a little bit about oh. that. You know, with the Decane spy ring had 33 members, it was the largest uh, spy network in American history. And their mission, overall mission, was to assassinate high-level uh, operatives um, and high-level government officials and to sabotage our government. So that was, uh, you know, that was started by by Hitler. And then, of course, Operation Pastorius also was uh, was uh, um, started by Hitler. It had eight members, and it was created after Pearl Harbor. And it attacked Sicilian targets and heads of state. And, uh, all of them, I believe, got the electric chair. <laughs> I mean, I was fortunate enough that they were able to, uh, to thwart their efforts. But, I mean, they had, they were, <laughs> these, these, uh, people, you know, these two sides were trying to assassinate and poison each other back and forth throughout the war. Um, Hitler had at least 42 attempts on his life from 1933 to 1944, and including um, there was even uh, one of his high-ranking generals, the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, was caught trying to start a coup from inside Germany to overthrow the Fuhrer, and um, he was uh, he was forced to take cyanide on, on uh, July 
July 20th, 1944. So, I mean, this is, <laughs> they, they had squads out to, out to hit each other. As a matter of fact, in my book, there's a, um, <laughs> right on a Maxwell Smart, there's a, there's a, a photo of a top secret document from the, the um, Royal Air Force, I believe. They had tried to murder, um, uh, Winston Churchill with an exploding chocolate bar. The Nazi bomb makers had figured out how to get a chocolate bar, a, a bomb to look like a chocolate bar, to get it in on the tray into the war room and get it in front of Churchill so when he unwrapped it, it would blow his head off. So these guys had been going back and forth and back and forth trying to knock the other one off, the opposition leaders off, by any means necessary. A couple times, um, Operation Long Jump happened, but they were trying to make a Tarankan where uh, Hitler had a squad that was supposed to assassinate all three of them. And, of course, just, just in the nick of time, they were, you know, they, had, they, were, they were caught because it almost worked. Uh, Hitler almost got all three of them at the Tehran Conference. Was it during the Tehran Conference that, in 1943, I believe, that, that we first start, or it was first noticed that Roosevelt started to look gaunt and sickly as early as forty three. It was, and it was. It was. I was in November of nineteen forty three, and that's when you know, he's still a healthy man. And again, the pictures are all in my book. What he looked like at Tehran in nineteen forty three, and what he looked like Yalta in nineteen forty five was drastically different. Um, in nineteen forty three, at the Tehran conference, uh, he started to have very strange health swings, uh, problems with his health. You know, they were served uh, steak and potato dinner, and he got so violently ill, he turned green and started to sweat and started to vomit. They actually had to, one of his um, his right-hand man, Harry Hopkins, who went everywhere with him, um, had to actually remove him from the room. It became so bad. It was then that crazy things started to happen. On the way back from the Tehran Conference, um, one of FDR's top generals, Major General Pa Watson, died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And they figured that he was poisoned. Um, FDR's um, personal secretary, McIntyre, no, no relation to Dr. McIntyre, he also died of a cerebral hemorrhage. So what we have now is we have people within the White House starting to play games and assassinate people with a poisoning, it is creating cerebral hemorrhage. And around this time, his mental health also um, on the wane. His mental capacity is waning. Uh, couldn't have happened at a worse time, obviously, because as 1944 moves into 1945, uh, the Allied leaders, Stalin, Churchill, and and Roosevelt, are basically divvying up the spoils and, and looking at what the post-war world will look like. So what a horrible time for for Roosevelt to essentially be in a fog. Well, it was planned out perfectly. I mean, if Roosevelt just suddenly showed up dead, it would, make a little, it would look a little suspicious. So he was being slowly poisoned from within the White House, uh, by a poison that they, they didn't know. They knew in Europe and the other countries, but we were behind a little bit. You know, there was a poisoning that was a, a common item that we had no idea was going to poison someone like this. 
And this is what started his demise. Because if you look at, you know, I had always thought all through school, and I was been, I had been told that uh, it was just the advance of his polio and so forth, and that's what happened to him and so forth. And it's completely untrue. The advance of polio does not, the, the symptoms of the advance of polio does not align with Dr. Leahy's assessment of the man on um, July 10th of 1944. Roosevelt's doctors, Dr. McIntyre, Dr. Bruin, Dr. Pollan, became so baffled why he was getting so sick at meal times and his body wasn't responding to any medication. His blood pressure was spiraling out of control and it would come back to normal. And then it would go to 310 over 195 and it would come back to normal. So they took this, this ailing person to um, Dr. Frank Leahy, who was the, the doctor of the day. He was the founder of the Leahy Clinic in Boston. And they basically said, what's wrong with this guy? We don't have a clue. Here's all of our information. We need help. So Frank Leahy um, looked at this man and determined, and of course, History.com in 2011 released Dr. Leahy's findings. And um, you can see him if you want to go online and look at him. Uh, this is what I started, when I, when I saw this, I started to realize that there was more going on here. My suspicions were right all along about how Roosevelt actually died. Um, Roosevelt's actual symptoms, well, I won't bother you with a laundry list, but I'll give you a synopsis here. Uh, he was having cardiovascular disease. He was having intellectual and mental problems. He was having sensory motor, sensory motor problems, gastrointestinal problems, and his nervous system was a wreck. He had skeletal problems. He was turning colors. His kidneys were failing. None of that is the advance of polio. It's the advance of poisoning. Every time FDR left the White House and went to Warm Springs, Georgia, or another location, he started to start. He started to feel better. He goes back to the White House. Bam! The symptoms happen again. So uh, every now and then in your research, and boy, did I do research and get lucky. And um, I found Margaret Suckley, Daisy Suckley, was one of uh, one of FDR's um, cousins, one of his favorite cousins, and she had published a diary entitled Closest Companion. And um, her quote here on page 203 is pretty telling. Um, she said that it's a president's fourth day in bed, and he still feels somewhat miserable. This is a quote. Although his fever is gone, last Tuesday, without any warning, he fell, fell ill at noon, also known as lunchtime when people eat, he lay in the study in the sofa until 4.30 p.m. when he found he had a temperature of 102. Get this. Dr. McIntyre found it was a toxic poisoning, but they couldn't describe anything to it. Hmm. Right there, they know he's being poisoned from within the White House. And what they were doing was they were treating him with sulfa drugs. But they still couldn't detect the poisoning. So... FDR was being slowly poisoned from within the White House, from communist plants. So when it came time to divvy up the world, he would be out of the way and no one would be none the wiser. So as a matter of fact, when he dies at Warm Springs, Georgia on April 12, 1945, he dies in the presence of two Russian spies. We Very get, interesting book. Right. <laughs> we will get we will get to the to that uh, after the uh, the top of the hour when we'll open up the phone lines and take questions and comments for Stephen Ubaney, researcher, author, who murdered FDR, the true story they don't want you to know. 
Back with more in a moment. 